Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association or JOMA podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I am a general pediatrician and proud JOMA member, and I'm really honored and really excited to be interviewing Dr. Ellie Shapiro. Before I start, I'm going to remind people, please um, email me at health, H-E-A-L-T-H, at joma.org if you have any topics you want to hear or you yourself have a topic you're passionate about. Um, please email me. That would be amazing. I love to interview people who are passionate about their topics. And Dr. Shapiro is certainly one of those people who's passionate about his topic. I will apologize in advance. I had so much I wanted to cover and we covered part of it. Um, He has so much to say. He's really amazing. Dr. Shapiro, EDD, LCSW, is a licensed clinical social worker with a doctorate in education and specialist certificate in Jewish educational leadership. He is the creator and director of the Digital Citizenship Project, the digitalcitizenship.com, an adjunct professor for the City University of New York and a trustee of the Queensboro Public Library. Dr. Shapiro is a graduate of the Azrieli School of Jewish Education and Administration, Wurzweiler School of Social Work, Turo College, and holds two licenses in school administration through the Queens College Postgraduate Educational Leadership Program. Dr. Shapiro has presented to thousands of parents, school faculty, and mental health professionals in communities across North America and has lectured for internationally recognized organizations including Aguda Israel of America, Consortium of Jewish Day Schools, International Conference of Chabad, Lubavitch Shulchim, Nefesh International, the Orthodox Union, Prisma, Center for Jewish Day Schools, Project Inspire, Torah and Sora, and Yeshiva University. He is an expert on the social and emotional functioning of families and leads numerous studies on Jewish families and technology. For more information, visit Eli Shapiro at www.elishapiro.com, also www.thedigitalcitizenship.com, and also, the latest organization is KeterTech, K-E-T-E-R-T-E-C-H dot org, that he mentions during this interview. Welcome, Dr. Shapiro. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you. I'm so excited to be having this conversation. I waited a long time for this. This is such an important topic, so I'm really, really excited to get going. I'm going to let you start just with talking about the digital, citizen, uh, digital, digital citizenship program that you have created. Yeah, so um, it's interesting. We started it in 2014, but its roots really started earlier than that. Um, As you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a clinical social worker. I have a doctorate in education. My original work was on the social-emotional literacy and functioning of kids in schools, and that naturally led me to um, bully prevention and promoting positive peer relations in school. And when I was doing my doctorate research, um, started in about 2010 or so, the whole idea of cyberbullying started to, uh, you started hearing in the news about cyberbullying. And so it was sort of a natural next step from a lot of the work I had previously done from traditional bullying into researching cyberbullying. And uh, in that research, I started uh, finding that 
the uh, issues around technology extended far beyond what the communal dialogue was at the time. Uh, and when you're thinking about what was going on uh, in the Orthodox community at the time, it was really focusing on the content of the internet uh, and filters as a solution. And that's certainly a very important aspect of it. But a lot of the research I was looking at um, and my own research was finding that technology was impacting functioning as a whole. And it was, it was just far beyond the content, but uh, it was our social interactions and our uh, how we communicated with one another and our relationships with other people, the social end, the psychological end, or um, how our relationship with technology impacted um, our uh, subjective well-being and anxiety um, and impulsivity and compulsivity. So we have these social aspects, we have these psychological, we have these behavioral uh, aspects that were being impacted, um, as well as the day-to-day uh, you know, functioning in our relationship with devices and, and with technology, um, it, was, so it was far beyond the content. And, and really what I was, uh, um, I guess, being confronted with on a communal level was the only focus at the time um, was content. And, and I, I would say now, I think the dialogue is a much richer dialogue uh, over the last 10 years, uh, but certainly at the time it was limited. And so um, I kept getting asked to do these uh, internet safety speeches uh, which was primarily people wanted to hear about, you know, the content of the internet, the schmutz of the internet and filters. And my, my uh, whole approach was different and my concerns were different. Uh, and so someone challenged me to say, well, you know, you keep saying that there needs to be someone addressing this larger scope of issues. Uh, if no one's doing it, you should be doing it. And that's really where the Digital Citizenship Project emerged from, um, where we developed content for uh, students, uh, curriculum for students, faculty, professional development in schools, parent programming, uh, and we decided to call it the Digital Citizenship Project. Um, at the time, digital citizenship was a, a term I had started seeing in the research, um, and so we sort of adopted that. Um, and now it's, I think, become a lot more um, uh, part of the um, regular vernacular around uh, technology, people do prefer to digital citizenship, but uh, that's really where the roots of the digital citizenship project started. I often joke that um, when we started, um, it was 2014 and Barack Obama was president and people thought it was a pathway to U.S. citizenship using the internet. So it's digital citizenship. Uh -huh. uh, I think people are more uh, educated now on, on what we're trying to accomplish. You know, what I think it's fascinating is that with all that conversation about the content that we were having, like, you know, in the Orthodox sphere um, and, and, and the filters and the, the banning, you know, aspect, it seemed to be that the religious world was worried about the Internet and the secular world seemed to not be concerned about it. And I feel like now the secular world realizes, right, the non-religious, non-Jewish world realizes a lot of the challenges that we're facing. So um, I, I think that there was concern. I think it was just different concern. Mm -hmm. you know, there was more of a, uh, in the Orthodox community, more of a moral imperative to address technology. Um, and certainly the biggest um, challenge that they were seeing, uh, you know, Orthodox leadership was in the content domain. That was, you know, the primary concern. Um, in, you know, I, I would say when you start moving towards the left and even to the secular, uh, the non-Jewish world, there was always concern about the relationship with devices and, and its impact. Um, you know, I, I recall there was a, a video I watched. Um, it was an interview. Um, I forget who was being interviewed, but it was from the 1970s. And they were um, 
showing this computer and the computer was the size of a room. And, and the person was predicting that one day everyone would have a computer in their home and they would be able to uh, you know, pay their bills and order theater tickets and, and whatever it might be all through their computer. And this is in the 1970s. And so the interviewer says to him, well, you know, what would that mean in terms of social consequences if people are in front of these screens all the time? And it was like this brilliant uh, interaction, this brilliant prediction of what the, the challenges might be. And I think there was always uh, an awareness of it um, and an intuitive concern, but I don't think we had the research for it um, uh, even, you know, even 15 years ago. When I, when I started doing my research, there was a very limited amount of uh, data on cyberbullying and um, technology's relationship with human functioning. I mean, now there are journals dedicated just to that topic. But uh, early on, I think intuitively there was concern. Similarly, intuitively, there was concern in the Orthodox community about content. But I think now, uh, and even now it's still early, um, we're going to look back in 10 years and, and 20 years and, and realize how much we don't know now. But, um, but certainly, I think intuitively it was there and the research is really starting to bear out a lot of the concerns that we had. And, you know, a lot of what I talk about, it's interesting, um, my message is exactly the same for my Orthodox and Jewish audience as it is for my non-Jewish audience. I'm actually speaking at a conference in a few weeks in Las Vegas uh, for a non-Jewish audience. Uh, and I've spoken for a numerous uh, National Association of Independent Schools, Nearpod, Beluga, uh, AccuTrain, all these other companies, and they're concerned about this as well. And uh, when I get a smaller group of school administrators, it's great to hear their concerns, and they're all talking about the same issues that we're talking about. So um, I think the concerns were different. I think they were there uh, across the board, um, but my focus had been the Orthodox community, um, and uh, that was my backyard, and that was really what I wanted to, uh, to address. And it, it was even more frustrating for me when I was just hearing the only message I was hearing was about the content. And so therefore, my response to that was, OK, let's let's elevate the conversation, expand the conversation. Right. And your program really doesn't address it from a religious perspective at all. Right. Yeah, no, not, not at all. I, the, the the content is is like ninety nine percent the same um, for my non-Jewish audience as my Jewish audience. Uh, I mean, as as when you're speaking to any audience, you want them to feel comfortable with you as a presenter. So you're going to make references that right. are cultural, culture specific, but it certainly is not the basis of the content of the presentations. Right. I just find it fascinating, though, because you ask pretty much anybody now what they think the cause of the mental health problems in children. We keep talking about the, the mental health crisis we're seeing in children and teens. And the first thing people usually say is, it's the internet, it's, you know, screens, which I think is, you know, a vast oversimplification. Um, but I think people do see that as a huge problem now. I don't think they saw that so much 10 years ago. Yeah, I, I, well, I agree with both your statements. One is that, uh, I guess three statements you made. One is that people do attribute all the ills of society to screens, as if there were no ills in society prior mm -hmm. to screens. Um, uh, two, I also agree that it's an oversimplification. Um, and uh, three, yeah, they, people were not talking about it in these terms 10 years ago. Um, and really, you know, there's longitudinal studies going on now that will really get a better understanding of it. But uh, there's so much that's intuitive about it. And it's also um, a lot of its impact is unique to individuals. 
Um, so we can make general statements based on the research that there is a relationship between anxiety and excessive screen time, whether it's uh, co correlational or causal is mm -hmm. not clear. It's probably a little of both. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you sit in front of a screen long enough, it's going to impact your mood. Um, on the other hand, people that have anxiety, particularly social anxiety, are going to be more drawn towards screens um, and, uh, you know, and become more dependent on it. Um, you know, when you think about uh, the social anxiety piece, um, one of the things that I talk a lot about is something called the online disinhibition effect, which was first identified by a psychologist named John Seller, I think in 2004 or so. So he was really ahead of his time. Um, and, uh, he basically identified that people are less inhibited online, um, and, uh, they're more likely to do or say things that they wouldn't normally do or say in face-to-face -face conversations. And it relates to, uh, a, a relative anonymity, whether it's a pure anonymity using a fake screen name or whether it's, you know, a relative anonymity, uh, just by the nature of the platform that you're using, um, people are still more likely to be less inhibited. So now if you take someone who uh, suffers from social anxiety that is inhibited significantly um, in real world interactions and you give them a device where they can formulate social connections. And so social connections are, are truly important for functioning. But if I don't feel comfortable in face-to-face -face conversations, but I can engage in these connections in a digital realm where I'm not feeling that anxiety, I'm going to become very dependent on that. And all the research on texting addiction supports that people that are identified as having texting addiction um, are much more likely to have social anxiety. Even there was a, uh, a famous study in 2012 by uh, Dr. David Palkovitz, uh, which ended up being called the Half Shabbos Study, um, where they found that uh, 12 to 18 percent of otherwise uh, uh, Sabbath observant uh, uh, teenagers were utilizing uh, social media and texting on, on Shabbos. And they also found in that study that there were elevated levels of anxiety and social anxiety. So that's pretty consistent. So, you know, the, the anxiety definitely contributes to the unhealthy relationship with technology. But additionally, we also know that excessive engagement with technology increases anxiety because we know that when you start cutting back from your technology use, your anxiety uh, lessens. So there is a little of both. Um, and uh, the most important piece is to understand that dynamic and understand the relationship. And it's also unique to the individual. Right. I'm wondering what you're seeing since COVID started, because certainly COVID has ramped up anxiety you know, and depression in, in everybody, especially in kids. Um, but it's also gotten us to do more screen time, not less screen time yeah. for various reasons. I mean, I could only guess like anybody else. We don't have the data on it um, to really make an informed statement. You know, do, is the elevated anxiety because of a global pandemic that had us uh, with a tremendous degree of uncertainty? I would venture to say that's probably more of a contributing factor than the the screens. Um, you know, anxiety stems from, you know, my colleague, uh, Dr. David Rossmarin um, from Harvard, um, you know, he, he, he ponders this question and I love, I love the way he presents it. I can never present it as well as him, but he ponders this question. He makes the point. We live in the wealthiest, most privileged society ever in, in the history of the world. We are the wealthiest, most privileged society. 
Um, you know, any any average person today lives a whole lot better than kings and queens of, of 500 years ago. I mean, we're we're I just talk about climate control. We have heat and air conditioning. You know, nothing nothing beats that. Um, yet we also have these incredibly high rates of anxiety. Um, and so the way he explains anxiety is that it is our obsession with controlling all the variables. And that's really where anxiety stems from. And so COVID in particular, you know, we spent all this time trying to control variables that were impossible to control. We just didn't know one day I'm, I can I can go to work or I'm stuck at home for two weeks or uh, I, masks, no masks. Can I travel? Can I not travel? Do I need a vaccine? Do I not need a vaccine? Does the vaccine work? Does it not? Is it dangerous? Is it big farm? Like all these questions. Right. So even if you someone had like the slightest inkling towards anxiety, this, you know, knocked it out of the park. And yes, there's increased screen time. Um, but there's like, I think two components that we need to think about. Um, one is at I, I, the way I describe the whole COVID thing is that it, it wasn't ideal. I think we can agree that it was not ideal. Um, as a result, a lot of the decisions we made uh, to manage uh, and function during this non-ideal time uh, may or may not have been ideal as well. So when we think about the excessive uh, screen engagement, um, I kind of think, what would it have been like if we didn't have screens? Like how bad, how much worse would that have been if we were like home without the ability to connect with family and loved ones and, and do school online? Was it ideal to be on a screen 10 hours a day or eight hours a day or whatever it was? Certainly not. But the alternative wasn't too good either. And so you have these competing uh, uh, issues around managing uh, a global pandemic um, and I'm sure we didn't get it right in many ways, but I'm sure we also got it right in other ways. That's, that's one piece. The other piece is there's a misconception um, about what screen time is. And it, it always frustrates me when I see headlines that say screen time causes or screen time this. Screen time is not a singular thing. Um, screen time is a very complex um, process and with multiple layers to it. And I, I sort of divide it into five different categories, um, starting with consumption being the lowest level of screen time. So consumption is your Netflix binging, right? So that's when you just sit down in front of a screen and just, you know, six hours later, you've done nothing. And truthfully, when you get up from six hours of Netflix binging, you don't feel good. You know, your, your overall well-being, your subjective well-being is low. You feel, you don't feel good about yourself, um, your self-perspective, self-worth, you just don't feel good. So that's consumption is the lowest level of screen time. Uh, the next level is something I call complementary, uh, which is actually video game play. It's not an example of that. Something that's more interactive than just that basic consumption. Uh, a lot of research prior to COVID and prior even to the internet uh, on the difference between watching television and playing video games. And now assuming that both for the television and for the video games, the content is nonviolent, not graphic, just uh, good, clean content, uh, not anything that's depressing, just content. Um, and uh, what, what we find is that uh, kids that play video games actually excel in a number of areas where 
the television watchers don't. They excel in uh, problem solving, collaborative problem solving, multitasking, drowning out external noise, uh, visual motor integration skills are improved. So there's something that's interactive with it that there's benefit to it. And of course, um, like with anything, there's a point of diminished returns where like at some point you've gotten the benefit from the gaming and then you know, you, you, you're not getting that benefit anymore. Uh, exactly how long that is, we don't know. Uh, what I recommend is that if you're 35 and living in your parents' basement playing Fortnite, you're <laughs> probably past the point of diminished returns. If, you know, I think a little before then, but all right. Yeah, it may, it may have been earlier, but you're definitely there at that point. Um, so that's, that's, you know, so that complementary piece is clearly, um, and, and the research bears this out, is better than uh, consumption, yet they're both screen time. And then I'm just going to fast forward all the way up to creative, the creative process with screens, um, which is um, uh, um, synchronous learning uh, and studying, uh, interactive uh, coding, graphic design, uh, you know, video editing, that creative process that we do with screens. That's clearly qualitatively different than consumption or even complementary. So when we talk about screen time, you know, I, it always, to me, it's just like, well, we need to look at it a little more in a more sophisticated way. What do we mean when we say screen time? So the majority of the screen time that kids were, were on was, was uh, mostly synchronous learning. Uh, there was some asynchronous learning. Some kids, interestingly enough, did better. Um, so uh, kids with uh, social anxiety, actually, uh, teachers reported that those kids did very well uh, primarily because of the online disinhibition effect. They were more participatory in class. They were more engaged in class. Uh, kids with ADHD and asynchronous learning did not do well at all. They you know, just couldn't self-regulate and self-manage. So there are definitely aspects um, you know, that we've learned from and we're still learning uh, from, from the data. But um, you know, to, to say that all screen time was created equal it would be a, a false statement. And um, the other thing, you know, is interesting. I had collected data from schools across the United States, yeshivas and day schools prior to COVID. I, I really, I don't use the data anymore because as you've pointed out, COVID sort of changed everything. But one of the findings that we had was when kids self-reported about their own technology use, they report, they were asked the question of, uh, of what, how much time they spent on school-related uh, work versus non-school-related uh, activities on the screen. And the kids reported that they spent 50 to 100% more time on non-school-related activities than school-related activities. So it's not the, uh, you know, history homework that is, you know, really triggering the, uh, the, the challenging relationships with technology. It's the, uh, you know, all the other social networking, social media, um, excessive gaming, excessive consumption. Those are the areas that we want to be more concerned about. Um, as opposed to just labeling everything, you know, screen time. Right. That's really good. Can we talk a little bit about how people use um, the screens to um, self-soothe and how people are doing that even with their youngest children? Maybe a little bit of that age of screen use. Because I know the yeah. AAP says no screens till age two. That is not happening. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about research and science is that it's it's generally, um, you know, we're we're espousing an ideal situation in a laboratory setting, you right. know, and and oftentimes it's just not reflective of the realities. 
on the ground, but certainly awareness is key. So, um, you know, the ability to self-regulate and, and, and self-soothe and, and, and self-care is something we talk a lot about, especially since COVID, is such an important uh, skill, a coping skill in, in building resilience and grit uh, in adults. And so one of the things that I frequently talk about in, in a more general sense is that technology has removed many of the opportunities for kids to develop resilience and grit. So I'll just give you like from an academic example. When I was a kid, if, if the, the homework assignment that I had for school required me to um, identify the distance uh, from the earth to the moon, uh, how would I get that information? If I didn't have an encyclopedia uh, Britannica at home, I'd go down to you know the uh, Brooklyn Public Library on, on East 16th Street and, and between I and J, and I would go in and I would uh, go to a librarian and she would direct me to the Dewey Decimal. Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> I'd have to figure out how to use that, pull the card, find the number, find the, the, the shelf where that is, get to it, find the book, find the page, get the information. So there's a lot of steps that go into Google, getting Google. <laughs> But today, we just we just ask our phones, and it will tell us that information. Right. So when kids today are have homework assignments or um, or papers or whatever it might be, the, the the challenge of it, you know, of gathering information and research is so much easier, and therefore there are fewer and fewer opportunities to develop the resilience and grit um, uh, in in society today. So we, as parents and as educators, um, we need to find more of those opportunities uh, and make things just by design a little more challenging, uh, you know, to help kids develop that. But let's go back even even further to what you're describing um, for the preschool age. And I, you know, it's funny. I've done. We tend to think of technology as an adolescent issue primarily, mm-hmm. um, but it, it it it's so much more than that. And and the technology is so much more impactful on the developing brain of zero to five years old than it is on an adolescent brain. Um, and so I found myself doing lectures exclusively for the early childhood community. Um, and uh, the, the example I give, there's two ish, real issues in the early childhood community <clears throat> in, that, in that critical stage of development. Issue number one is developing and creating dependence for the child on the device. And we do this here's the example of where it's most profound um, and most impactful. When, I, when um, you know, prior to cell phones, when a parent would take their child to a doctor and the child would get their uh, vaccine, and I'm not making political statements, just the regular vaccine that we all know and love. <laughs> We're um, not saying COVID, no, no. <laughs> right. The regular ones. So, um, you know, the child would get the vaccine, the mother or the father would pick the child up, rub their back, make them feel good. And what is the child experientially learning through this process is that my parents are here for me. They love me. They can make me feel good when I'm in pain and when I'm hurting. And right, that's, it's, it's not even, it's not a verbal uh, expression. It's not a cognitive process. It's an experiential process, which is the most powerful, uh, you know, that child can experience. Today, when a parent takes their child to the doctor and the doctor gives them that shot, uh, what do they do? They hand them their phone mm-hmm. and uh, maybe there's a YouTube on or something that's, that's distracting them. So what is the message that the child is learning is that a phone, a screen 
can help me regulate my mood. It can help me when I'm in pain. It can make me feel better when I'm sad. And they're learning this again, experientially, which is the most positive, uh, most powerful experiences. Uh, and it really imprints on them uh, that experience. And it's very hard to unlearn that uh, when you when it's been imprinted, your first experiences in managing pain and frustration and stress and disappointment is a screen. Uh, and the truth is it works. It works at that age. It distracts them and, and you know, it, it, so it's, it's very powerful that that's it distracts one. us too, by the way. Yeah. Well, yeah, but we, <laughs> we, we hopefully, and certainly at, at our age, um, we had our earliest experiences were not that of a phone or not that of a screen. So it was introduced later. So you can imagine if it was introduced later and it still has that powerful effect, how much more so it is on that critical stage of development of early childhood. Right. So right but the point, I'm sorry, but the point that I'm making is it is different for us, but our kids are also seeing us often yeah. use screens too much or use screens to self-regulate. So that's that's the the, the flip side of the coin. Mm-hmm. When a that that was, you know, we're creating dependence on our kids. The next is um, you know, just c- contrasting adolescence with early childhood. Um, if an adolescent sees their parents on their phone, it doesn't rock their world, like doesn't completely destroy them. Say, oh, my parents are my dad's more addicted to his phone than I am. You know, like it's it's a cognitive experience for them. And it may have disappointment, there may be an emotional component to it. Um, and there's a, a you know, the statistic that um, that um, uh, six out of 10 parents are concerned about their children's technology habits, but seven out of 10 children are concerned about their parents' technology habits. I, I don't know if that's a real statistic, oh. but um, <laughs> you get the idea of that, that, uh, that you know, challenge between what right. parents are saying and what parents are doing. With that said, let's bring it back down to the early childhood experience again, where they don't have that cognitive process, that understanding of the technology. All they know is, all a two-year-old knows is they're trying to get their parents' attention. They're trying to, you know, make that connection, create that relationship, have that interaction, and they can't, they're, they're not getting the feedback. They're not getting that empathy. They're not getting that um, facial connection, the physical connection, because the parent is on the phone, they're on the device. And that is so impactful. Again, contrasting it to a teenager, like, all right, they, they deal with it, but, and I'm not saying it's good, but just the, the utter devastation that a two-year-old has experienced trying to get their parents' attention and the parent is, is zoned out. Um, there's actually a great um, uh, study some, that was done, it's called the still face experiment. And if, if you Google that, if you Google the still face experiment um, and you see the mother just stares at the child without any response and any reaction, you can see the stress and the, the suffering that the child is going through and trying to get that feedback, get that response. That's really what parents are doing with their phones and with their devices. So uh, it's so important uh, twofold, especially in this early childhood age, limit the, you know, giving them the phone. It, it may be an easy fix, uh, you know, in the moment, but you're missing opportunities to formulate a much more meaningful connection with your child. Uh, and two, uh, the other piece is it's so important to have time where you've put the phone away, that you're not distracted by it, and that you are completely and fully engaged with the child. Absolutely. Did you see the children's book? where the parent is on their phone the whole time things are happening and the kid's trying to get the parent to look. 
I didn't see that. No. There is a children's book. It's the saddest thing. It's really very sad. Okay. Um, so this is all really important. And by the way, as a pediatrician, I'm seeing a lot of children um, who are showing more delays than I would expect. Like, I don't think developmental delays should be increasing. I can understand why anxiety would be increasing since COVID. Um, I'm really wondering what's happening. I, I don't know. I don't want to speculate. I think, look, in, in some ways, COVID was a blessing. In, in some ways, if, if you took advantage of it, you know, in the early stages of COVID, I, I was interviewed and, you know, one of the suggestions I made is what statements do you want to be able to make post COVID, you know, in, in two years from now, what statements are you going to want to be able to, are you going to want to say that you were, you know, just on videos and stressed out, or do you want to be able to say there were opportunities for family time that didn't exist before? One of the greatest gifts of COVID was I did not have for, for months on end, the struggle of waking my kids up in the morning and, and getting them out of bed. That's a struggle for every parent. All of a sudden I have an opportunity where they don't have to be out of bed by seven o'clock. It could be nine o'clock. And we like, so all of a sudden that stress and that tension that starts the day was eliminated. Or even the idea of, uh, you know, uh, for a number of weeks, uh, we dive in Kabbalah Shabbos at home as a family. When's that ever going to happen again? You know, like it was just an opportunity to, have real rich quality family time in so many ways if if we took advantage of it. Right. Similarly today, so we don't have those opportunities or challenges, uh, but we do have different opportunities and challenges with the decisions we make around technology. And so one recommendation that I make for families um, and something we do in my own home uh, is going dark for dinner where there's no technology at the dinner table. At least 15, 20 minutes a night, it's just the family, no technology. And it's it's a remarkable thing. You find out about your children's day in school. You get some of the details you can share with them. It's almost like Shabbos. It's like amazing. Um, you know, there are people who take technology Shabbos who aren't Jewish. Yeah, no, I, I just heard um, uh, I, uh, Dr. Mark Rich. I think he runs the wellness, um, digital wellness center in the Boston Children's Hospital. He's also a, he's a Harvard professor who recommends a digital Shabbat He's Jewish, right? Yeah, I believe he's Jewish. Um, I but think I he don't... lives in Philadelphia, and he he wrote a book. I think I started oh, okay. to read it. I just I was uh, I just uh, attended a uh, um, a seminar by him, yeah. and he he talked about it. And it, it wasn't the Jewish audience, but um, he talked about having a digital Shabbat. So. Right. You know, I want at the end to end with positive stuff. So I really want to go over all those little tips that you have on your website at the very end, if that's okay. Um, sure. So I'm going to go back to a little bit more of the challenges. Um, can we talk a little bit about communication challenges? I know this is part of your curriculum. Uh, yeah. Um, well, let's call it miscommunication. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, we we often find that, um, I, look, we've all been there where uh, we sent a text or a digital communication to someone and they completely misunderstood what we were trying to say or vice versa, where we got something um, and we, we completely misunderstood what they were trying to say. Um, and that really has to do with um, the research of Moravian, who identifies that 80% of communication is paraverbal, meaning it's not the words, it's everything else, it's the body language, the intonation, the volume, uh, you know, all of that contributes to uh, communication. But the digital realm, all you have is the words itself. And, and emojis, um, and emojis. Don't right. forget emojis. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting, though, because I, I don't think we have... Um, 
I don't think we have a standardized explanation of what each emoji is and when to use it. Right. Uh, so even, even at times, uh, you know, like there's the emoji um, where it's the smiley face with the, the heart eyes. Mm-hmm. So in my mind, that's sort of a romantic gesture that one might use. And that's how I see it, um, which was very strange when, you know, my brother-in-law sent that to me and I was like, well, I don't know what that's about. Um, but, you know, even that the standardized, we, we there is miscommunication with emojis as well. Um, and it, we, we just, it, it, it creates issues. I, it's interesting because I just did a, um, a podcast um, for Yeshiva University's um, uh, Connects, uh, their dating uh, program. And we were talking about dating in the, in the digital age and how digital communication mm-hmm. can artificially, artificially enhance relationships that might not be there. Uh, disinhibition plays a role in it. Impulsivity plays a role in it. But miscommunication plays a role both in the positive and the negative. And when we also think of that, um, the, uh, you know, genders, gender plays a role in how we approach technology. Uh, women tend to use technology for uh, social purposes and connectivity purposes, and men tend to use technology for entertainment purposes uh, and utilitarian purposes. And so uh, you can have people in a relationship where you're communicating, but your whole paradigm on the communication is, is completely different. Um, and so miscommunication can certainly occur in, in those terms, but even uh, you know, when you're on the same page as far as that or within the same gender, uh, the language itself, you know, how many times have we uh, really misunderstood something? We have a, a group of friends. We go out to dinner every once in a while. And so we had this uh, group chat. Someone said, OK, let's make, uh, make we'll make a reservation at whatever restaurant it was. And someone uh, responded, it's all booked. And so it's all booked led to the question, well, is it all booked we have a reservation or is it all booked we couldn't get a reservation? And that's like just a a very innocuous example of how miscommunications uh, can occur. When um, working with with kids, we we have a sentence that we put on the board um, and how many different ways can you you interpret this sentence? So it's uh, something along the lines of, um, I did not tell David you were late to work today. So it could be, I did not tell David you were late to work today. I did not tell David you were late to work today. I did not tell David you were late to work today. I did not tell David you were late to work today. So like, you see how it goes. So really, depending on my perspective, how I'm reading it can be very different with your perspective on how you wrote it. And one of the things we try to do, um, certainly in the education standpoint is one, recognize that we tend to be more impulsive when it comes to digital communication. So we sort of spit things out without really, I think we also tend to be uh, disinhibited. So that also impacts how we communicate and what we say. But we can also look at text and sort of perspective taking. Perspective taking is is important in general, but certainly in the digital age, uh, really looking at, at, at copy and looking at uh, what you're writing and how it might uh, be interpreted um, is is a critical skill of digital citizenship um, and navigating the digital realm and reducing some of the challenges and consequences that that may uh, come about. Absolutely, you know, I've heard that teenagers now have to go through two adolescences: one their physical one, and one their digital one. And so, I'm just thinking about all the things you're saying and how hard it is just to be a teenager and to you know navigate the social norms. Mm. 
but to have to navigate it digitally too. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's really hard. Um, yeah, I don't envy teenagers today. Um, and and certainly, you know, the uh, research that came out of Facebook or that was leaked from Facebook mm. on it, on on social networking's impact specifically on adolescent girls. Um, you know, again, girls tend to approach technology from a relationship standpoint, from a social standpoint. So its impact is that much more significant. Um, and it's, it's certainly something to be concerned about how it, it, you know, the constant barrage, you know, we used to say about how, uh, magazines would influence body image and, right. and that perspective. I mean, that was Larry, you get like once a month, you get a magazine or, you know, the overall media, maybe you see billboards, but today you're just inundated, inundated with, with, uh, content that, um, impacts your your paradigms, your perspectives, your self-worth, your self-identity. And not only that, it's compounded because the algorithms that are used to target you as an individual will be targeted with the same material that you spent a, a second and a half pausing on longer because it something hit you in a certain way. And then you get more of it and more of it and more of it. And it really um it has an impact on on people's uh, um, well-being and, and, and subjective well-being. Um, Absolutely. And we haven't even gotten to cyberbullying yet. Yeah. Want to talk about that? Um, a little bit. I want to make sure we get to your course. And, and I also, also want to talk about a little bit about whether you give advice to parents in terms of when kids should have a smartphone, you know, can that be delayed? Does that make a difference? That's a lot of questions. Yeah. Okay. Which angle? <laughs> Let's start with, with the age. Cause I, I meant to start with that. Okay. So um, the longer you can postpone technology engagement, the better. I mean, just, you know, the better off it's okay. Kids can be bored. Boredom promotes creativity. Uh, you know, like, uh, the more we can postpone it, the better. The challenge with technology, as with other things, um, it's very much um, driven by social norms. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in a community where the social norm is that uh, children are getting smartphones in fifth grade, it becomes very challenging to say no to your child. And eventually what ends up happening um, is the consequences of not giving them the device uh, exceed the consequences of giving them device. There are consequences either way. Right. This is something that parents need to accept no, at, at, with anything. Either way, we lose. There's, there's consequences either way. And our job as parents is to choose the path with the least consequences. Um, so, you know, we talk about social norms. You know, I've, I've had parents say, I don't care what's going on. My child is not getting a smartphone. And I say, okay, that's your right as a parent. Uh, but you know, sometimes they want to argue. Um, but you're saying that if everyone has it, um, they, my child should have it. Said, no, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you have a decision to make as a parent uh, at that point and assessing whether the consequences of giving it to them are worse than the consequences of not giving it to them. That will also play into the personality type of that child. There are some kids that even when everyone else has a phone, they just don't care. It's just not on their radar. They are busy with other things. They're probably less social than the, you know, the kids that want the device. Um, 
you know, they might like doing puzzles or other things and or reading, you know, that then that's fine. That's great. Postpone as long as possible. So because we know that it's the social norms that are influencing the drive for devices, you know, our recommendation from a school standpoint and from a grade standpoint is as parents, you can influence those social norms. When parents get together and say, okay, we're fifth grade parents, let's, let's, let's be real. Do our kids really need smartphones? No, they don't need smartphones. So let's agree as a fifth grade community, as a class, we're not going to, you know, let our kids get smartphones. We'll revisit it again in sixth grade. All you have to do next year, sit down together and make that decision uh, again. And there's a lot of schools that I work with that, um, you know, they help facilitate this process. There's a great organization called MUST, Mothers Unite to Stall Technology. um, And they help parents facilitate this process of creating grade level standards, um, you know, of devices. So maybe it's not devices or maybe we agree that, you know, it's it's eighth grade or it's ninth grade and it's time, you know, everyone needs devices. Parents need to be in touch with their kids. Um, and I, I say the word need more from the parents perspective than the reality. Um, but, you know, they need to be in touch with their kids. So but do they really need TikTok? You know, like, can we agree that no one should be on TikTok? But all of this is driven by the social norms. So the more that we can influence those social norms, the more control we're going to have as parents. Usually what happens is a child comes home and says, everybody is using Instagram. Everybody's on Instagram. And in most cases, it's not everybody. Um, It's probably one or two kids. Um, But as parents, you can control um, if you put that effort in to to control the social norms um, and address it that way, utilizing organizations like MUST to help support that endeavor and that mission will make it easier. Uh, you don't need it. It just makes it easier. And working with a school community also is going to make that easier. Right. That is really good advice. Um, what about communities where the norm is not to use the internet at all? Are they home free? I'm just looking at it from the opposite perspective. Um, I, I think... You know, what I'm jealous the, of them. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I'm jealous. Okay. No, um, I think the espoused values versus the reality may be in conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can tell you that um, um, having presented in different communities, even in in some of the ultra um, orthodox communities where there's an espoused value of no internet, in any given class, you might have. Um, I'll just give an example. Um, I had, and this goes back about five years ago, so it's obviously worse now, a very ultra-Orthodox school um, in a very ultra-Orthodox community. Uh, The fifth grade Rebbe came over to me and said, legitimately, half of his class does not have internet at home, do not have smartphones, no gaming systems, like nothing. They really have absolutely nothing. However, the other half of the class has something, mm. whether it's a parent smartphone that the kids are using or even internet or a computer in the house. Um, so it, it really becomes, that just really means that the other half has access as well. And in a lot of these communities, they're not talking about it because um, you know we have a policy, no internet. And so therefore that's the beginning and the end of the conversation. Uh, they're not gonna talk about responsible ways of using technology because the policy is, um, is no technology, no internet. 
So um, I, I don't know uh, how prevalent uh, it is that there are communities that really legitimately don't have any internet. I think you have a lot of individuals um, that don't have, um, and they're probably living richer, <laughs> right. better you know, lives socially, psychologically, behaviorally, spiritually. I, it's a wonderful thing. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, it, it's, it, it's amazing. Uh, to be able to do that. My two oldest daughters, uh, one is uh, 19 and one is 22, uh, neither of them have smartphones. Uh, they, wow. Yeah, they made it, and they grew up in five towns um, with smartphones. Um, and, you know, it's it's always been part of the conversation in our house. Um, and they made a decision um, at some point in seminary in, in, in Israel that um, they functioned better without smartphones. And yes, it has times where it's incredibly inconvenient, uh, both for us as parents and for them as individuals, but that's the sacrifice that they've chosen to make for a higher quality of life in their in their perspective. So um, I think that's amazing. Um, and, and when people can do that, I think one doesn't have to completely eliminate the technology from their lives to, um, to elevate their practice with technology, but really uh, to self-assess, uh, you know, what do they call it in in, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous? A, a fearless, uh, I think, a fearless moral inventory. So mm-hmm. people need to take a fearless inventory of their own technology habits. And a fundamental question that people need to ask themselves on a daily basis or even multiple times a day, is technology serving as an enhancement in my life or is it serving as an intrusion in my life? And then making decisions to have it lean more towards enhancement rather than intrusion. And one of the ways I do, and I do this exercise myself, um, is I, and this is going back to what we talked about, the word need, um, what do I want versus what do I need? And being able to make that distinction, sometimes it's hard to assess that, but what do I want versus what do I need? Um, And then the next question is, what do I need portable versus what do I need access to? So um, as I, I was finding personally that I was getting more and more notifications and pop-ups and to me, it was just a distraction. And, and, and like every time you hear that extended ding that just sort of hangs there, uh, I just, my anxiety always went up. So I, I sat down with my phone and I started saying, all right, what do I, what do I want? What do I need? And what do I need portable? So some of the things that I found that you need to be portable, uh, ways, ways needs to be portable. It doesn't really work well on a desktop computer. Um, so that's something that I needed on my phone. Then I was looking at Twitter. Do I, do I need Twitter? Well, okay. I need Twitter because I use it for communication, but do I need it portable? All right. Let me get, get that off of my phone. Right. So these are decisions that we have to look at and see really where is it enhancing and where is it intruding? I, I, uh, I am going to confess. Um, I did put Twitter back on my phone. Uh, mainly because I was missing out on Dan's deals, which I... Um, <laughs> That's important. Yeah, yeah. So I that needs to be portable. <laughs> so, uh, but I, what I did was I set it up that the only notifications I get were from Dan's deal. So, you know, that's that's the thoughtful and deliberative approach we need to take with technology in order for it to be an enhancement rather than an intrusion. For most of us, we approach technology without thought and without strategy. And, and I think probably that's the most important, like if there's one piece of information recommendation, um, it's not about a specific app or it's not about a specific phone or internet, no internet. It's just all of this 
be thoughtful and deliberative about it. And whether how it's raising our kids or for ourselves, that's the key is to really be thoughtful and really see how is the technology uh, impacting, uh, you know, my functioning. Right. And you're setting an example for your kids. So I want to get back to, um, because I want to know your thoughts on filters and parental controls. They're good. They should have them. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, when I, um, expanded on the communal dialogue a number of years ago, it was not in contrast to um, filters and parental control software. It was in addition to. Right. Um, but the truth is some of the earliest research that I did um, where we compared um, gr different groups, uh, groups, um, we compared two groups. I'm not going to label them for public consumption, but we had probably about 2000 surveys completed by parents and they were asked to self-identify uh, their uh, affiliation within the Orthodox community. Um, and so uh, one group, um, however they identified, they had double the rate of device ownership. This is amongst the kids, double the rate of device ownership, double the rate of um, social media and half the rate of filters. Let's call that group group A. And then group B had half the number of devices amongst kids percentage-wise, half the, the level of engagement in social media and uh, double the rate of filters, okay? So that these are our two groups. When we compared the two groups with the following question, um, this, is, this is we asked, we asked this to the kids. Do you look up websites that your parents would disapprove of? So obviously we thought that the group with the more devices, more social media and half the rate of, um, of filters would look up, you know, would have a higher rate of reporting, looking up websites their parents would disapprove of because they had more, you know, uh, what do they call it with crime? It's uh, motive, motive and opportunity, you know, so oh, right. they have motive and they have opportunity. So you'd think it would be, uh, higher. And what we found was that it was the exact same rate, uh, percentage of kids that reported looking up websites that their parents would disapprove of. Um, some of your audience, I know it's a sophisticated audience, they're going to say, well, qualitatively, the two groups are different. Uh, and that is true. Qualitatively, what one parent group would approve of would be different than what the other parent group would approve of. But at the end of the day, we have the same rate of kids knowingly um, in engaging in behavior that moves away from their communal norms. You know, that's, that's what we're looking at, the, you know, the uh, departure from communal norms. And so what we found was that the filters in and of themselves were not effective in reducing the type of behavior uh, that it was designed to reduce. Uh, it could be the frequency was reduced, but it was not uh, reducing the behavior. But when we took those same two groups and we asked, um, do your parents speak with you about safe and responsible ways of using technology. And we asked them, are there set rules and guidelines in your house around technology? When kids answered yes to those questions, it significantly reduced the likelihood that they were going to go on websites that their parents would disapprove of. So it was the filters and the parental management in addition to the education and the guidance and the leadership uh, on behalf of the parents. So uh, you, you have to have filters, you have to have parental control devices, primarily because it's a physical manifestation of whatever the parental values are. But if you're not communicating the parental values, then it's almost as 
uh, restrictive and kids, you know, you're, Im you're imposing on their autonomy. Um, and they will win. Yeah. And there was actually a study and th this is really where I, I, I forget the professor's name. It was at the university of Haifa um, where he actually found um, that kids were getting into more trouble. And I know I'm not operationally defining that term, uh, but kids were more problematic behavior of kids that had filters on their phones and kids that didn't have filters on their phones. I was uh, astounded by this. I was, I said, this can't be right. I actually emailed the professor. Uh, we went back and forth a few times and he did concede that um, it, it could be slightly different in Israeli culture where there's a high degree of, of uh, independence. And anytime that independence is pushed on uh, by teenagers, they do push back. Um, but I, in, in more and more of my work uh, in the United States, I'm finding that, you know, the desire for autonomy uh, is pretty consistent. And if it's not uh, approached in a educational way and in, in a empathetic way and in a validating way uh, to kids, then, you know, you're likely going to not have as an effect, the effect that you want, the outcome that you want um, by just putting filters and devices. I also, I get the question, um, should I just put filters and management software without telling my child or monitoring software without telling my child? And I, I strongly discourage that. It's really about the relationship. It's about the communication. Um, and like, just from a pragmatic standpoint, what, what's going to happen if you find something that you don't approve of? You're not going to tell your child that, oh, we've been spying on you and, you know, there's no trust. So I, I strongly discourage that. Uh, it should be part of the dialogue. It's part of the, you know, you know, if you're old enough and mature enough to have a device, we are going to help you along by managing it. And it's just, it's not just about the content filters. It's about shutoff times. It's about maximum, uh, you know, doses of screen time per day. It's, it's setting all of that up so that your child can, again, maximize what technology has to offer and avoiding and minimizing and mitigating some of the inherent challenges that go along with it. Absolutely. You know what? We have like three times the amount of material that we can cover today. So I'm going to leave out all the cyberbullying um, related topics and just maybe summarize and on, on a high note of what parents can do. And, and also, we didn't even really go into all the things you do um, with your programs, but maybe we'll just say where people can find you um, at the end and then they can, because it's very, very thorough information on your website. Is that okay with you? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, because we could be talking for three hours. At <laughs> least. I, I could go all day with this. So much information and it's so important. Um, but I think it's important to say that if parents are thinking, oh my gosh, like that's great, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do that, but I don't know how, you have a lot of resources. Yeah, I, you know, I, I primarily focus on school communities um, rather than individual parents. I, I mm -hmm. think that if you really want to have an impact, um, because children live in the school environment, they spend more hours a day there than anywhere else. And that's really what's going to influence their drive for technology and their habits and their norms. Um, it's so important to approach this on a school-wide level. So what I love doing is coming out to a school community um, and, and speaking to, to parents and, you know, hearing the concerns and helping them develop a, um, a, a communal strategy. In fact, we started a new organization uh, called Keter, 
Uh, it stands for Kahila Technology Education Resources. Um, and what the drive for that was, well, I did start Digital Citizenship Project uh, almost 10 years ago. What I found was that there were a handful of individuals and other organizations that sort of emerged over the last 10 years that were um, addressing slightly different aspects of the technology space. And in order for schools and parents to have a really meaningful um, intervention or strategy, uh, it really required multiple entities, not just digital citizenship project. So we started Keter. The website for Keter is ketertech.org. Um, uh, Keter, T-E-C-H.org. Uh, um, and the idea was to take these entities and work with school communities and assess where their needs are and then create a comprehensive technology strategy utilizing, it could be the Digital Citizenship Project, it could be MUST, uh, it could be Project Focus out of Chicago, Project Trust, KPhone. So these are all um, entities that we work with, JEDIT, the Jewish EdTech IT group that helps schools with their, even their Chromebooks. You know, one of the challenges we were hearing from parents is, you know, the school has all these policies on personal devices, but they're handing out Chromebooks that gives them more access than their personal devices. So helping schools really um, identify what their uh, philosophy around technology is, and then really all the way from devices to behaviors, really providing them with the resources, the organizational resources to help them succeed as a school community. So that's, that's really in the last year we, we created Keter, um, and we've been seeing really great results from that, working with schools around the country. That is amazing. The last resource is JETA, something. JETA, uh, Jewish Ed Tech and IT. It's uh, a division of the consortium of Jewish day schools. Cool. That is amazing. And then KetterTech.org. Remind me again what that does. So that, that's a website for schools to it, it really just see what the resources are. They can reach out to Keter and we um, help them develop a comprehensive technology strategy. So it's not just about you know, the education. I'll be honest with you, I'm not an expert on filters and filtering devices or device management. I'm not a technologist. So I can bring people through Keter. We can have uh, experts in that arena. We can have MUST uh, organizing grade level consensus building. And then Digital Citizenship Project can do the education and the student education. The idea is to really take a holistic, comprehensive approach um, to addressing technology as opposed to the piecemeal approach where maybe I get filters and, you know, that's, but I don't do the education. Or maybe I don't do the education, but I don't have the filtered resources. Or maybe I do the education, but I didn't build grade level consensus. So the idea was to put this all under one um, easy to access a portal for schools and ultimately parents and, and a school community. Now, how does that differ from your programming, your curriculum that you have? It's called TechSmart. Yeah, so TechSmart is is the name we gave the curriculum um, and the actual uh, you know programming that we do with students and with faculty. Um, so it's a it's a piece of it. Uh, you know, Keter is sort of an umbrella. We took six different existing organizations and then put them under one umbrella. So a school in the past, if I were working with a school, it would be under Digital Citizenship Project. We would do a parent program. We would do the curriculum. We train faculty. 
school faculty in doing education modules with students around uh, areas like impulsivity and disinhibition and miscommunication, resilience and grit and mindfulness and all these miscommunication, all these other topics. And so we train, uh, we have a train the trainers model where we train faculty to then do workshops with the students throughout the year. But that doesn't necessarily change the parental culture, right? It doesn't necessarily address fil- the pragmatics of filtering devices. It doesn't necessarily help the school establish um, what their ed tech values are when it comes to technology. So they can do a whole host of educational pieces, but have they uh, guided their teachers or have they established that homework assignments do or don't require the internet? And if they do require the internet, what sort of mechanism or platform have we set up where students have the information available to them but are not going to be distracted by other content or uh, you know other distractions of the internet. So what are we doing to, again, maximize what they can do with technology and avoid those challenges? And so what Keter does, where it really expands from what just digital citizenship does, mm-hmm. it just expands. It's a much more comprehensive um, strategy for schools. That's amazing. So let's just end on what people, parents can do right now. We talked about some of it already. Um, We talked about filters. We don't have to go through that again. Um, But you have a whole list. It's on your website, on the Digital Citizenship website. There's a whole um, page of ideas Maybe you could just pick a few of them and not put don't have the list them. in front of me. I have the list in front of me. So. <laughs> Remind me what it says. Um, I mean, I can it, tell you the way what I think some of the most important are, but you know. yeah, I mean, I'm going to just give the categories. There's model responsible digital engagement. Yeah. Which so, you've so talked about before. Yeah. So that, that is really the parental role. Parents mm-hmm. are the number one influence on what kids think is appropriate and responsible when it comes to technology and anything else. By the way, we've been talking about technology, but everything as, as a parent, it's the same rules. Right. You know, whether your child's crossing the street or going to the store on their own, we always have to assess, you know, the consequences of action versus the consequences of inaction. Um, you know, and and that goes into it just because it's the communal norm. Am I going to go along with it? What happens if I don't? What happens if I do? So being thoughtful and deliberative plays a role in it. But even more than than you know, telling our kids what we expect of them, it's modeling what we expect of them. That doesn't mean that you need to be embarrassed to use your phone. It just means be transparent about it and say, oh, I have a client I have to get back to, and then I'm all yours. Or I need to respond to this text. Um, and then I'm, then I'm going to put my phone away and we're going to spend some quality time together. So that's modeling. It, modeling doesn't mean not using technology. Modeling means showing kids how you use it appropriately. And so, um, you know, we have these opportunities all the time to demonstrate for our kids and be transparent about it. We tend not to be. We tend to, you know, uh, just either do it or... Um, you know, but in order for us to, to inculcate values into our kids, we have to be transparent and communicate that. So that's, that's really what modeling is about. And, and again, parents are the number one influence. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way for parents. Um, but consistently when we ask kids, you know, give them a list of who the biggest influences are, uh, consistently parents, uh, end up being the number one. Right. And they're watching us every second. Yeah. They're watching what we actually do. So that is actually very important. Um, we had promote healthy social interactions here. 
Yeah. So, you know, um, oftentimes parents understand uh, either intuitively or they came to a speech and they're riled up and like, okay, no more technology. You can't just get rid of technology. You have to provide uh, alternative opportunities um, for kids to have, you know, things to do outside of technology. You can't just say no technology. So finding what your kids' interests are. So some kids are into sports. Some kids are into reading. Some kids are into um, hanging out with friends, but also limiting it without the, the technology. We need to promote those activities. So one example um, is I recently spent an obscene amount of money on a hockey stick for my son way more than I would have ever expected a hockey stick to cost. Um, but he's interested in hockey. And if I get him the stick, it means he's going to spend that much more time outside playing hockey. So we need to invest uh, both in our time as parents and monetarily in helping our kids uh, supporting their interests. I have another, uh, another child who's uh, a, a piano player. She loves playing piano. And it is, it is amazing to me how much piano teachers make uh, on an hourly basis. They do, they do pretty well, and there's no malpractice insurance. So um, I need a new uh, career. All right. <laughs> yeah. um, no third-party reimbursement and no malpractice insurance. Uh, so they're, they're doing pretty well. But why do you know, we pay the piano teacher? Because it's an activity that is non-computer-based. It's not screen-based. So we need to support that. Um, also, as, as parents... Um, you know, I'm like any other parent. I like sitting on the couch and, and just, you know, doing nothing. So on this past Thanksgiving, when my son said to me, let's go to the park to the roller hockey rink. And it's my day off from work. My initial reaction is, oh, I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to sit on the couch. Um, but the answer is as a parent um, for, you know, we sort of signed up for this long-term contract uh, that we're, we're in um, and it just means that, you know, you have to get up and, and go do those things. So that's what I mean, providing alternative, uh, non-digital activities, social activities, uh, finding your children's interest, understanding what that interest is, um, and, and, uh, finding those opportunities. Additionally, another thing, it doesn't mean that it's all going to be that your kids are going to play video games. Sometimes they're going to watch, um, you know, shows sometimes and, um, you can share that experience with them. And then you're taking it from an exclusively, you know, uh, individualized digital activity to a shared experience where the medium happens to be a digital activity. So my son who likes to play hockey also likes to play video game hockey. So we will play video game hockey once in a while. Um, and he beats me every time. It's like not even close. He's just better at it than I am. Um, but it's now it's a shared experience. And we talk about, oh, remember that goal you scored off me in the game? Uh, you know, so it, it becomes a shared experience. So um, one is we want to have more opportunities for non-digital activities, social activities, and, and, and promoting their interests outside of technology. But even within technology, we can elevate the technology engagement by having it become a shared experience as well. I'm going to throw in a little pediatric thing here in that if you do see that your child doesn't have any other interests and they are spending all their time in technology, then may be a sign of, of a mental health issue that you need to address. Yeah. I, you know, if, if you can't find anything that your, your children are interested outside of that, uh, we're talking about demonstrating a high degree of dependence uh, that would be of concern. Uh, but another thing, by the way, you know, you, you sort of, I guess it's the flip side about what age is the right age to get a phone 
is what is the right amount of of uh, you know of time in front of a screen, whether it's consumption or creative. It's not that there's never a time for consumption. You know, there are times to sit down and just you know, uh, yeah, and veg out. There are times for that. The question is, at what point is it problematic? Um, and the answer is, is really in, up to it's individualized. Um, you know, the DSM four used to have something called global assessment of functioning and DSM-5 doesn't have it. I don't know why they got rid of it. But when we look at our kids, we have to do a global assessment of functioning. Just look at their whole uh, experience. I'm a lot less concerned about someone, you know, even consuming too much Netflix when they are doing well in school, when they have a social life, when they are active, when they're doing things, I'm a lot less concerned. And I'm even more concerned about a minimal amount of consumption or video game, complimentary video game play when they're academically failing and when they're, um, you know, engaged in, uh, they're not engaged socially and they're introverted to the point of, you know, they, they just don't communicate and their affect is, is, so we have to look at their, their overall level of functioning. And that also will guide us uh, when it comes to technology as well. Right. So you had, um, a couple of the things you had, um, dialogue, real conversations with active listening and non-judgmental responses, um, which is, I think, self-explanatory. No? So, yeah, that? <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of things that I think are self-explanatory so need explaining. Um, so a, a few things happen. You know, when it comes to uh, dialogue, and I do this exercise with every parent audience that I've ever uh, spoken to across multiple countries and hundreds of cities. And the, the response is always exactly the same. The, the exercise I do is like this. Um, I always say that if my public speaking career didn't work out, I would become a mentalist. And a mentalist knows what you're thinking. And um, I'm going to say something and you're all going to respond in unison. And um, if I'm correct, if my mentalist skills are correct, you will see whatever it is you said on the screen behind me. And so I follow up with, um, you know, your child comes home uh, from school and you say, how was your day? And they respond and I do my magic mentalist hand move like this. And how was your day? And the audience says either good or fine. And that's what I have on the screen. And I say, well, the really good parents in this room you won't let your children get away with a good fine. You will follow up with the ever important question of what did you do today? And stuff. Not, well, usually they say nothing um, is what we get from most. Stuff is actually a level up from, uh, from nothing. So you must have a great relationship with your kids. Um, but, uh, you know, usually get nothing. And, and that's that disingenuous dialogue that we have all, all too often with the kids. What did you do today? How's your day? Fine. What did you do today? Nothing. Where's the iPad? You know, that's conversation. So a genuine dialogue um, is really, tell me about your day. It's open-ended questions. Um, it's like, you know, what was going on at lunch today or what, you know, what was happening in science class today? You know, something that, that they have to expand on. And that promotes uh, more of a meaningful, rich dialogue, um, including giving you the opportunity to actively listen. Another thing that parents can do is to share about their day. And I'll sometimes say, like, oh, I'm so glad you asked, even if they didn't. Let me tell you about what happened at work today and, you know, share with them. And really, it's promoting that dialogue, promoting that relationship. So then when it comes to more complicated conversations, like, 
technology or substance abuse or healthy decision-making, the, the mechanism for dialogue has extended uh, beyond the one word. Right. Uh, answers. right. Yeah. So there's uh, two more parts to this um, besides limit screen time, which we talked about and install filters, which we talked about, which is um, using digital um, items in public places. You have it here. A computer should be set up in a public place. Oh. Doors must be kept open. Phones and internet activity should be regularly monitored. I think that's important. Yeah. So as, uh, when you said public place, for some reason, I'm thinking about the mall. I'm um, sorry. Yeah. No. <laughs> Only computers in the mall. <laughs> um, the Apple store. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So the idea is to have policies and, and rules and recommendations. So um, we, we know from our research that when there are, are clear expectations and rules, um, it, the results are better. So it's almost secondary what those rules are. We give these as examples. So computers being utilized in a public place or the door to your room being open, um, you know, those are just examples of rules and guidelines. Um, we, we think it's, it's good practice. It's almost less about, you know, if you have your child on a filtered device in their room and the door is closed, I mean, they're, they're not going to get into too much trouble, but just establishing an expectation that there's a time for technology and there's a way to use technology by, by establishing those rules, you're going to be in a better situation for the communication, for the dialogue, for uh, the outcomes around technology. Uh, other examples we give, and you know, we didn't touch on it, and I think it's so important, is uh, the impact that technology has on sleep. Mm. Um, so uh, Harvard did a study uh, where they had uh, individuals read from an e-reader and read from a book. It was the same content uh, at bedtime. And what they found was, and you don't have to have gone to Harvard to, uh, to uh, figure this out. When you read a book at bedtime, it puts you to sleep, um, perhaps before prescribing, uh, you know, Ambien, uh, just a good book um, and see if that helps. But, and they found that with an e-reader, it actually uh, inhibited quality sleep. It made it harder to fall asleep. The quality of sleep was different. Um, and so based on that recommendation, we tell parents to uh, not let your kids be on devices half hour, 45 minutes before bedtime. So maybe that's a rule, you know? So the idea is it's not specifically about the public places because the expectation is that the devices that your children are using are monitored or filtered or regulated. So it's not about a privacy thing per se, but it's it's all it's about creating rules and establishing rules. And also when it comes to technology engagement, if it's a public activity, it's 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 more it's more social, you know, in and of itself. Uh -huh. So you might be sharing, oh, look at this thing that I'm looking at, you know, uh, a funny video or something like that. Uh, similar to when a parent is playing a video game with their kid. It takes it out of the realm of that individual um, myopic stuck with just the screen uh, to more of a communal activity. But that's one example of, of rule. So it's not the public per se. Uh, it's just examples of policies that you might have. Could be going to, you know, uh, no devices before half hour before bedtime. It could be no devices the first 30 minutes home from school. It could be uh, going dark for dinner is another example of it. 
Um, so those are just some of the strategies that we recommend to have clear rules, guidelines, and expectations when it comes to technology in the home. Right. I thought you were talking about having it in a public place also for a safety reasons, which we 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 did not get into. And honestly, internet safety, we didn't touch upon it the entire talk. We had a whole talk about digital citizenship and we didn't mention any of the dangers. So that's going to have to be a separate, a separate episode um, with somebody. <laughs> um, maybe you. <laughs> so, but I do want to mention one more thing that's at the very end of this, which is um, supervising, and it's also related to sleep. I, I think I saw a statistic on your website about how many kids sleep with their phone under their pillow. I think it's about seventy-seven percent, something like that. Um, it's it's having devices within reach. Um, yeah. So what we found was it was in the high seventies, if I recall correctly, um, of kids that have devices sleep with them within reach. Um, and that goes back to the sleep issue. Uh, and most kids will say, why do they need the device? They need it for an alarm clock. They don't need it for an alarm clock. They can have an alarm clock, you know, <laughs> like you don't they still make those. Yeah, they still make them. Uh, we have near, near my house, we have something called amazing savings. Uh, but I think any dollar general or anything like that, they still sell the alarm clocks. Um, I know it's a little hard to, to set the clock. You have to hold this button down and push other buttons, so much work. but uh, they don't need a different alarm clock. And going back to setting expectations, um, and I, the, my kids can quote the Harvard study to you because I tell them, you know, they can't have their phones, uh, you know, at, next to their beds at bedtime. And so, you, you know, one of the things parents can do is using device management software, have the phone shut off at a certain point of the evening automatically. It takes away the push and pull. Uh, but kids should, you know, have to bring their devices to their parents um, at a certain point of the evening, it's teaching them responsibility. Um, and uh, that just becomes part of the regular routine uh, within the house. Right. When my kids were younger, we used to shut off the Wi-Fi. No one had Wi-Fi. Just went off magically. Yeah. Look, there, there are so many ways of utilizing technology today to make this easier. Um, you know, I happen to recommend Apple products. Um, I mean, primarily because I'm a shareholder. But uh, in addition to that, I just find them to be the most intuitive um, and easy for parents to manage. It doesn't mean it's foolproof. Uh, you have to know what you're doing when you're setting up devices. Uh, there, there are YouTube channels for that to figure out how to do that. Um, and, you know, setting that up um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, to a degree, you know, there's opportunity to set it and, and it's pretty much going to stay uh, you know, how it is, unless you didn't set it up properly. So, um, right. But I really love that you look at this from all the different angles, because I really do think that it takes a village. It can't just be on the parent's shoulders to control their kids. It's not going to work. So I think that that your programs are amazing. How can people find you? Um, well, they can go to ketertech.org. They can go to elishapiro.com. They can go to the digitalcitizenship.com. Um, all of those would have access to uh, my work. That's really, really amazing. I hope you let me interview you a second time because we literally only covered some of the material. There's so much to talk about. Um, and I really, really appreciate you taking all this time to, to talk to me. My pleasure. All this great information. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. 
If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.